Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the third weekend of November 2023. I hope you've been enjoying this season for what it has to offer. Certainly longer nights, shorter days, and cooler temperatures. I've been getting out a little bit and seeing some birds, a couple bramblings this fall. Black and white warbler showed up. If you're getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded with David Jadhan earlier this month. He was visiting from Anchorage to look at nudibranchs, and I'd previously met him on a trip when he came birding last year. We'll go ahead and join the conversation uh, talking about that remarkable birding trip. I met you actually last year. You came to Sitka, so last year would have been 2022. You you visited Sitka with, uh, let's see, Brad Bentner, I believe, and Sully. I think it was just three of you on that trip. Yeah, Brad Brad Bentner and Sully Gibson, yeah. Yeah, Sully and Brad both are, are well-known in the Alaska birding community these days. Um, both have, well, Brad's over 400 species now, and Sully well north of 300 and has been guiding out on the Pribloffs for a number of years. So it gets to see yeah. some different stuff out there for sure. But yeah, you all were chasing a black and white warbler, which I think was maybe something like the 12th or 13th or 11th, somewhere in that neighborhood for yeah. the state. Well, I think we, we originally were coming down for the Hearman's Oh, you had been planned to do that And anyway. then, so we had all booked our tickets. And then I think, you know, after we all, you know, pressed purchase or whatever, like probably half an hour later, there was a Facebook alert about the black and white warbler. Yeah. So that was just perfect timing there. <laughs> We got bonuses. Yeah, that that's pretty lucky because you ended up having a good a good trip. It was you were only here for like two days, I think. Yeah, one night. So about the same time that I'm in town now. Yeah, and you got the black and white. But I remember you showed up uh, Friday morning. The black and white warbler you got pretty quickly, and then it was like, oh, let's go look for the Hearman skull. Uh, it, yeah. That took a little. That was longer. the evening because we yeah. tried a few different spots around town. Because but still, the first day. Still, yeah. still the first day, yeah. And where was it? There was some park you drive Totem out the park. road with. Totem yeah. Park, yeah. That's where, yeah. So not not too far away. Uh, it had been been around into October last year, and then uh, yeah, I remember seeing it out there. Nice evening light. Yeah, which was something that struck me as interesting about that bird was like, and I've heard this phenomenon brought up by birders multiple times is how big or small you expect a bird to be, mm-hmm. and then the size that it actually turns up being. And the Hearman's goal, I heard it was a smaller gull species, but I was really surprised at how small it was. And with the fading light, the fact that it was a dark juvenile didn't really help with standing out. <laughs> no, yeah, it was, yeah, uh, yeah uh, uh, distinctive in its way, but yeah, very dark and uh, yeah, not much, I mean, definitely larger than our short-billed goals, but kind of Thayer's goal size maybe. Uh, sure, Definitely yeah. smaller than all the glaucus wing and those coconut goal hybrid birds that, that we have so many of here. Uh, and then I remember that evening also a, a leech's storm petrel flew across the river mouth and was promptly killed by a gull. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think, we didn't have the best looks at that, but no. I think I had about 10 seconds of observation before it was not countable anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of funny. That's the first one I've seen. It was only the, well, no, it's not the first, it's the first one I've seen during daylight. Um, cool. I guess, uh, well, not the second one I seen during daylight. Cause there was a storm earlier in the year before there was a storm where there was some that were along the shoreline 
and other people like randomly in the summer have seen them fly by you know so it's it's one of th- those things sometimes they do but but it's for as many of them as are nesting out on Lazaria, it's it's kind of remarkable how infrequently they're reported um, and I think they're mostly just active at night and so yeah um, so that was interesting to have that one show up there and then the next day you're like well we got all our birds and now what <laughs> So y'all went birding, found a swamp sparrow at Stargavin. Uh, that was a little tricky to to get eyes on uh, for very long, but yeah. it's confirmed in the end. Yeah, that bird seemed to have some sort of tunnel system working around <laughs> through the tall grasses in the marsh. Yeah. And yeah, curious how birds, rare birds like that, move around. You know, we don't know how long that bird was there, but you mentioned at Stargavin. Again, it was my first time in Sitka, but so I was unfamiliar with the area. But you mentioned on high tide it comes all the way up to kind of where the boardwalk is. And yeah. You wonder in an event like something like that, would that bird be displaced and relocate? In my experience of watching the sparrows out there and there's song sparrows throughout that, in a really high tide, they will be pushed up and mm-hmm. they'll just move up closer. They'll also just stay out there in the grass above the water, in, okay. the, in the sedges and the vegetation. So they can just hold on to the, you know, they're not on the ground, but a lot of times they're not on the ground anyway. So it doesn't, matter that much to them maybe they pick seeds off the surface or just hang out there and wait where it's in their cover but but they're definitely in a high tide i see more of them up around the boardwalk kind of foraging in the leaves and that kind of thing and in that case you know it's often song sparrows and fox sparrows and golden crown sparrows but you know i've seen swamp sparrows out there before as well and seen them during high tide feeding kind of along the boardwalk and actually on the boardwalk a couple of times so that's that's been interesting. That one is the earliest one because that was the third week of October, around the 21st of October, I think. Yeah. And all the other ones I've ever seen have been in November or later, you know, that they overwintered. Interesting. So that one was the earliest one. I don't know if that's, you know, because swamp sparrows are one of those kind of skulky birds that doesn't necessarily like to come out and show itself all the time. Uh, so it's hard to know if that was an early one or if we just don't happen to see them earlier or haven't happened to see them. It's not like we've seen lots of them. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, but I remember our luck didn't run out there. No. <laughs> no, that's true. Because uh, you all wanted to see Eurasian collared doves, and I knew where somebody had had seen them at least somewhat recently. So I told you about there and, and pointed you in that direction, and I showed up there myself, and then you all were looking, and then... Uh, Lo and behold, a tropical kingbird, kingbird shows up. Yeah. Or, I mean, it was probably there. You found I, Brad found it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I ended up actually getting eyes on a dove on that trip. I actually got my lifer Eurasian collared dove in Ketchikan um, a little bit later, which when you grow up in Alaska and spend your whole life here, things like that are a little more exciting than yeah. somebody that's <laughs> you know from the lower 48. But yeah, I remember, I think we got lunch. And we're just birding around town, and it was a remarkably nice day for Sitka's reputation. Especially for October, yeah. Yeah, and Brad literally said, yeah, it feels like a, tr- it feels like a kingbird kind of day. <laughs> and those were, those were the exact words. And, you know, within two hours later, there was one just perched on a telephone wire, which, I mean, it was a really good year, good fall yeah. for them last year. So, Yeah, that was a pretty hard-to-beat trip if you're just going to spend two days in Sitka and to get – to get those, those. So of course, then there was the wood duck was here, which was kind of yeah. Just like, there oh, were wood duck the and way. coots <laughs> on Swan Lake, which yeah. were both you know notable birds in, in their own right. And yeah, I mean, I remember, I think at least several times throughout that trip, you know, Brad's been doing it longer than Sully, and he looked, he would look over at me several times. This was last season was kind of my first, uh, 
my rookie season, if you will, of chasing rare birds like mm-hmm. that. And I've always been interested, but you know, never really went out of my way. And at least beyond Anchorage. And Brad would look over at me and he'd go, man, you're getting spoiled. <laughs> you're, getting, you're getting too many on one trip. This is supposed to cost you more miles. Yeah, it's not always yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And in fact, it wasn't. Last last year, there were some folks that came in the days after you were here, didn't find either Hearman's Goal or the Black and White Warbler. And yeah. so, um, you know, the Wood Duck and Coots were still around. But th- those ones don't tend to drive people to travel because they're easy enough to to get at some point. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, the human skull and the black and white warbler both are unusual enough that you kind of have to make an effort unless you happen to live where they show up. <laughs> you you got to make a, make an effort to go see them. Yeah. And I was just talking to somebody, I guess, uh, Dave Sonneborn, who's, you know, has, I, I believe still holds the, the, uh, top of the list for number of species seen in Alaska mm-hmm. and has been at it for many, many years, had, uh, written up a chart of, of, rare birds and how long they are seen, uh, seen. And he okay. said, if you're not there within the first two days, you probably don't bother. Yeah. Which, <laughs> because most of them are gone by then. What's interesting. I think based on my limited experience my, myself, and then also others with more experience in talking with them, I could say that that sounds pretty accurate. However, the outliers of that rule are really interesting. Yeah. Like the black headed goal that was in Anchorage all summer, for example, yeah, I was out on Middleton Island, far from Anchorage, you know, with no hope of going to see that. But I mean, it was okay. I had a great summer, but still, seeing the WhatsApp messages constantly <laughs> of people going, "It's here," "No, it's over there," you know, in the chase, I kind of had to live vicariously through that. And you know, it was the during my first year on Middleton, there were a couple rare birds that were seen towards the end of my stay. So those stung a little more because it was like, ah, almost. So close, yeah. But this one, I mean, it was like middle of my stay, middle of summer. So I was like, ah, well, you know, good for them. But then it just stayed. And I was able to see it multiple times even after I came back to the mainland in mid-August. Yeah. So. Yeah, sometimes they they are if they've been around. The Human School last year was an interesting example because we saw it sporadically in August, no sightings in September. And then we started seeing it in October again. And there were several sightings in October. So that one, you know, you could, well, and the the flip side of it is like a lot of times you just see a bird and whoever sees it, sees it, and then it's gone. And you don't see it again. There's quite a few birds that have been like that as well. So, you know, those ones, it's, it's, if if you're going to be the sort to chase a bird and, and travel for it, it's like, how quick do you pull the trigger? You know, do you wait one day and then see and then, like, be on your way? The black and white warbler last year, we saw it the first day. You all, I guess that's why you were here so soon. I thought, I didn't realize you had already all planned your trips already and were already headed down yeah, this way. And th- then the black and white warbler showed up and you happened to be here. But that was the last day it was seen. Nobody saw it after that again. So. Yeah, so that was kind of lucky um, in a way, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that one would have been hard to chase i mean you you could have tried yeah it's not like it was but, coming to a feeder i mean with warblers and things it's yeah from to my knowledge they're you can go to the same like we did at castle hill go to the same area and hopefully it's productive enough and that's hanging around but you know i think from to my knowledge something like a finch or a 
or a sparrow is maybe more likely to stick to a feeder if it is seen there. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, it seems to be off. Well, I mean, if it's seen there and it keeps coming back, you know, the person can watch. It's an interesting case. I mean, I saw a purple finch at my feeder, a colorful one, which is the first colorful one I've seen. We just saw it briefly, and I haven't seen it again, but I also haven't been watching for it. It's not so unusual here that I'm like, okay, I need to stake out my feeder. Plus, it's the time of year when things show up. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm out looking around for other things. And and not so much that one. The warblers over the years at Castle Hill in particular, I mean, the black and white warbler didn't stick around. I'm trying to think. Most of the other warblers, unless um, the magnolia warble being a notable exception because it got killed (laughs) within 15 minutes of me, or I think within a half an hour, certainly, of me first seeing it, it got killed by an owl. So, and and I saw that. So, (laughs) so I knew that that's what happened to that one. Um, so that was an exception. But other than that, I think most of the warblers that have showed up there have been around for a few days. They keep coming back there. This year's Tennessee warbler certainly did. So the black and white warbler was kind of an exception, but it also didn't seem as inclined. It, it, it wasn't feeding on the leaves and it would go to the spruce trees and the other trees. So there's a lot more acceptable to it habitat perhaps around here which wouldn't keep it anchored there whereas the other warblers were very much focused on the maple leaves and so they were foraging on the maple leaves and i think that's why they were there yeah so it's uh yeah it's in there there was a black and white warbler that showed up this year showed up in somebody's garden lives out on an island no maple trees or anything it was Hmm. it was feeding on some of the trees and shrubs and actually on the ground uh, in the garden there, I was able to get out. Uh, the, the person uh, gave me a ride out, and um, I was able to get a look at it very briefly. I saw it for less than 30 seconds. I got a couple of pictures of it, and then it flew away and, and watched. It was getting late in the day, but never saw it again. And I don't think they ever saw it again either. So it was just that day yeah. over the course of about an hour. Still very cool, two years in a row, given that yeah. there's maybe, I think, less than 10 records for sure for the state. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, very notable for sure. But again, so it's the habitat thing, you know, where where maybe if those aren't attracted to those um, sort of hot spots, then th- they're much less likely to be encountered. If if they're just whatever random patch of forest is fine with them, yeah, <laughs> you know, the chances of them intersecting with somebody, and that could be a, an explanation for the. I mean, they are an East Coast species, so you you don't necessarily expect them to be uh, common anyway. But it may be that they're vagrant more often than the records would indicate just if if they don't – if their preferred habitat is – if they are fine with forested, you know, the conifer habitat, there's lots of that here. And, <laughs> and we aren't going to cover it all. But, um, yeah, those kind of uh, vagrant traps, they call them, you know, the, the Castle Hill being one of them that's been pretty successful for us over the years with warblers in particular. Yeah. Uh, it's been been interesting, and feeders, you know, is another version of that. But yeah, it's it's kind of a fun thing. You just never know what you're going to see. Um, yeah, you. So you worked out on Middleton. You mentioned for two summers in a row. What what took you out to Middleton Island? Yeah, so I was first introduced to Middleton Island. I I guess I would always see it on the eBird maps as Middleton Island, and then in parentheses restricted access. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of one of those places in my mind. That was like kind of like gamble where it's like, oh, it seems kind of hard to get out to, but that'd be cool to bird there. And I would see a handful of eBird checklists. But just coincidentally, I was doing an internship at the Sea Life Center and kind of talking about wanting to get into doing uh, seabird research in the field. And one of my coworkers at the Sea Life Center, who I was helping do some seabird surveys in Resurrection Bay, 
she had been a crew lead on Middleton for um, a few years prior to that. And she, after I did a couple surveys with her, she was like, oh, I'd be happy to write you a reference. I still am in contact with those people. And one thing led to another and I, you know, applied and got an interview and then I was there the next summer. So it was like a field tech? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just general field tech. Um, yeah. Basically, there's they have their ongoing Blackleaded Kitty Wake study, which has been going on. I think they've been regularly taking data since either 1996, I want to say. Don't quote me on that, but that's, you know, general ballpark. Originally, that operation was, I think, more federal, either USGS or U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And then they kind of had interest elsewhere and wanted to, you know, I think, stop doing as much on Middleton. But Scott Hatch, who was an employee with, I think, USGS at the time, said, no, I'm really interested in why this kittiwake population has been fluctuating over the years. And, you know, there's clearly after the 1964 earthquake, the uh, geography of the island is shifting and has shifted. We've seen it. And the population seems to be being affected by this shift in geography and available nesting habitat. Basically, pre-1964 earthquake, the slopes of Middleton Island and the cliffs were, you know, I don't know how else to put it other than proper mer habitat. Mm -hmm. You know, just um, if you think of, look around the islands around Sitka and you think of these talusing slopes and cliffs, it was more akin to that. But after the 64 earthquake, it rose the island up and caused this uh, gradual erosion and the the cliffs kind of just sloughed off and became forested and hmm. vegetated. Um, and to put this into better perspective, I think let's let's say the year was 1985, just to give it a number. The rhinoceros auklet population of the island was around, I think, 12 pairs, something like that. And now it's around 6,000 pairs. And that's just that's and that's since their nesting habitat is are there a burrowing nest? They're, they're burrow nesters. Yeah. So the cliffs got full of these salmonberry and willow thickets, and so and the roots uh, dug fairly deep, and so the auklets then went into this now covered slopes and just dug their way in, and now it's just the perfect habitat for them. Hmm. Whereas the kittiwakes, you know, the kittiwake isn't going to nest in a bush, um, so there's no cliffs left for the kittiwake. So that's had an impact on, I think, their uh, the population of the kittiwakes on that island. However, all of the Cold War and World War II infrastructure that was left over on the island still is standing as perfect, suitable kittiwake habitat. So Scott Hatch took the main radio tower on Middleton Island, uh, knocked out the first top two floors of it, put in this very large wood paneling, cut windows into it, uh, and put little window sills on them, little ledges, and now there's thousands of kittiwakes nesting on on <laughs> that tower. Um, they, I think, they were already nesting on the tower. You know, it was abandoned for some time, so they were nesting on the roof and on the little support beams on the sides. But there were no windows and ledges for them to nest on. So he was the one that originally uh, put those in, and now there's just hundreds of windows with one-way glass in them and people from all over the world are able to conduct research on these kittiwakes you know this is everything from deploying gps and gls loggers to see where they're foraging um and for how long they're out foraging people have recently put accelerometers on these kittiwakes to see how uh 
their foraging trips and their wing beat frequency are correlated and how that attributes to perhaps their breeding success. Um, a lot of people know a lot more about it than I do. As a general field technician, I was basically just there to help mm-hmm. um, people. And yeah, I, I could talk about it for longer than an hour, of course, but <laughs> just to give you the general gist, there's yeah. there's a lot that goes on. One of the interesting things that goes on that uh, Scott started himself was he said, well, how would their their breeding success be impacted if we started feeding some of them? Mm. Uh, just a, you feed them three times a day, as many capelin or herring as they can eat. It's I think it's always been capelin with the exception of, I think, one season for part of the season we fed them herring. Um, but yeah, it's at 9 a.m., 2 p.m., and 6 p.m. You go up and there's these little holes on the side of each window. They don't see you. There's just like a little piece of PVC tubing and you stick a capelin through there and they eat it. And then you stick another and they eat it and then... These are the young birds that are eating it, or adults. Adults. Oh, adults, adults, and then eventually the young eat them as well once they get big enough. <laughs> magic, magic food pipe. <laughs> magic food pipe, and I, from what I've seen, depending on the, the bird, the personality does differ a little bit from individual to individual. But the smarter kittiwakes catch on pretty quickly that that tube equals food, and some of those birds have been coming back and getting fed for many years. Mm. I think the oldest kittiwakes on the tower are around 24 years old, hmm. and they have been being fed for just around that long. <laughs> uh, so are all of them getting fed, or they're just a- No, there's a there's like a limited control group. Yeah. Uh, let's say there's 12 panels. I'm just off the top of my head thinking, let's say there's 12 panels on the tower. I think only three of those are getting fed. Okay. There's definitely more than 12. And is it but- the, are they... Coming back to the same, so essentially it ends up as a practical matter being a bunch of ledges. So I'll call them a nest box, even though they're not strictly speaking a yeah, box, but it's fine. like the equivalent of a, of a of a hotel of nest boxes. Are they coming back to the individual pairs coming back to the same ledge so each year? Or? I fed C panel. They're all lettered A B C D mm-hmm. and so on. I fed C panel two years in a row, and many of my birds that I fed this year had the same room last year. Oh wow. <laughs> um, but some were new. Some yeah. totally got outcompeted by new pairs. I had a couple of windows that had brand new pairs on them. Maybe those birds were nesting elsewhere on the tower. You know, they could yeah. have been nesting on one of the lower support beams or on different infrastructure around the island. But it's it was it's interesting the differing in personality between the new birds and the ones that have been returning for year after year after year. Hmm. One notable thing is the birds that have been returning for year after year are much harder to catch oh. than the new birds. <laughs> they figured out the, way, the the tricks of the scientists. Yeah, they know. You have to get them while they're preening or asleep Yeah, or very, very sneaky. So you were telling me this earlier in the day when we were talking, you were, you were talking about, so there's a little hook system that you, that is, is when they're on the nest, essentially, that, that can be deployed to kind of grab them. Yeah. Um, but when, when they know it's coming, they can, they can fly off before it gets them, essentially. Yeah, some of them are incredibly in tune. There's, there's basically there's the top two floors are where we do the research, and the top floor, the floor is a little more creaky than the bottom mm-hmm. floor. Oh, and, so they and hear so you they, they can Some yeah. of them literally hear you walking and wake up, and they're on alert. And if they see the uh, – first of all, because people probably don't know, that's one-way glass. So when you go up to the window, they, they cannot see you. But you can see them. But you can see them just fine. Um, but under 
this window, there's a little credit card slit where you insert kind of a clothes hanger-esque hook in there. It's very small, very thin. And you push it through the credit card slit and then carefully loop it around one leg of the kitty wake and then pull them in against the window, lift said window, and then pull them through. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how we're capturing them. Um, But yeah, some of these birds that have been veterans to the tower are just really in tune and they know the system well. Other ones that we refer to as no-banders or sometimes half-banders have not been caught as much or at all, and they're ideally completely oblivious. Mm -hmm. Um, Half-banded kittiwakes, as far as recent history on Middleton goes, half-banded kittiwake is just a kittiwake that was born on the tower. So at a certain age, say 30 days, it gets a color band and a metal band, and then it's released and will go fledge. Um, so that's as a as a unfledged young, it gets the band. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then, say, four or five years later, it returns to the tower. And then the idea is at the beginning of every season, every half-bander on that tower is caught. Hmm. So there's in the, in the early season, during early nest building, ideally it, it must be done before laying. We don't want any half-banders or, God forbid, no-banders breeding on that tower. That's the system. They want to hmm. know the the individual of every bird that is breeding on that tower. Okay. So a half-bander, then they would have the records of who its parents were, essentially. And so yeah, ideally. there's a certain amount of, of if, if it was born on the tower, yeah. then the parents would have also been banded. And, and yep. you know, potentially, I guess, back generation, although it sounds like these are fairly long-lived birds, potentially. So maybe not too many generations. But yeah, um, and, cool. and so it's like... A few is it is that you, you mentioned four or five years is that kind of typical before they'll start breeding? Or? Yeah, a lot of seabirds are like that. Like uh, even like here in Sitka, like Glaucus wing gulls or short. I don't know about short billed gulls, but I think they're uh, a three cycle. Yeah, goal. I yeah, do but know. I don't know when they actually start breeding as opposed to reaching adult plumage. Yeah, yeah. I do know Glaucus wing gulls. They're not going to be returning to breed for four or five years. Yeah, um, I've heard albatross. It's similar. Maybe maybe I even think longer. even longer. Yeah, yeah, probably even longer. But yeah, a lot of seabirds like that won't return to breed for a number of years. So these kittiwakes, the every year you have a different cohort year. So it's silver over orange one year, silver over green the next year. So it's kind of funny on any given year you'll notice. Wow, a lot of these half banders have the same. Yeah, silver over whatever color. That's kind of interesting. Well, it's all these young birds from the same hatch year coming back to breed. And every once in a while you get a straggler that's from a year before or two years before that hasn't quite made the cut yet or is yeah. looking for a partner. You, yeah. know, you, you can't catch them all. Right. Um, but <laughs> Well, and they don't all, I imagine, come back to the tower. Yeah, exactly. You see them randomly around the island. There's other infrastructure that we don't do any research on and we don't maintain that's just, you know, they're fading away from the past era of military occupation. And it serves as perfectly fine, you know, nesting habitat, but we're not going out there and catching them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting um, thing. These birds, um, again, you mentioned this before when we were talking earlier today that one of the reasons you can do this is because Kittiwakes don't abandon their nests. Many species, if you if you were to yeah. capture them like this, would just abandon the nest. But these will keep coming back. They, they become wary of the of the credit card hook. <laughs> yeah, um, but but otherwise they'll keep keep caring for the young and coming back. Yeah, and, it's it's amazing how resilient they are. They 
they obviously don't like being yanked through their windows and blood taken or, you know, wing measurements and tarsus measurements and things like that. But they still come back and they breed. They produce young, which Mm. is amazing. Whereas uh, tufted puffins, which we also do research on the island, uh, similar research, um, are much more sensitive. Uh, Alcids in general have been proven to be much more sensitive than kittiwakes. Um, both tufted puffins and rhinoceros auklets have been proven time and time again to be prone to disturbance and abandonment, so, uh, pu- tufted puffins especially. Some tufted puffins, even putting your hand in a burrow and searching for the presence of a puffin or egg just to confirm occupancy, sometimes is enough to make that adult leave and abandon their egg, hmm. which is not ideal, but just the reality of the situation. You have to be a lot more selective and careful when working with the puffins. So, yeah, so there's limits uh, based on the, for lack of a better word, pers- personality uh, or uh, temperaments, maybe we'll say, of, of individual species. And then you mentioned that individual birds um, have, you know, different different temperaments them- themselves, it seems like. They, they seem to. Some people have looked a little bit into that mm-hmm. and personality I, that's kind of a newer thing doing personality tests um you know i wouldn't quote that as you know defined science or anything but there seems to be something to that like some people on middleton were doing personality tests on rhinoceros auklets just again this is all seemingly very new but for example if you put your hand in a nest box um how like do different rhinoceros auklets display different levels of aggression are some you know more prone to abandonment than others how does that vary you know if, you, if you're using the same method of investigation if you will you know going in the same access hole in the nest box and different birds how do they react differently with kitty wakes i mean anyone that's worked on middleton knows firsthand some kitty wakes are much more aggressive than others mm. some are perfectly calm when you handle them and seemingly don't care and they're again this is just kind of my two cents but there's definitely seems to be some correlation between females typically being less aggressive than male kittiwakes we know that they weigh less on average so that's one thing we know um but they just seem to be a little more calm and relaxed when handling some of the males are really aggressive and are they are they characteristically fighting each other for sometimes they do and, the the or main, nest, nesting uh, locations yeah that that definitely happens um i've seen it in kitty wakes multiple times the tower is supposedly you know the highest quality nesting habitat on the island well, it's just getting food out of a magic pipe I oh imagine, espe- yeah. especially <laughs> the especially those sites on the tower yeah but even without the feeding experiment going on i mean it's just it's it's private it's nice you have your own area there's little borders between every windowsill it's high up it's not as dense and crowded as areas without those borders and separations not every site on the tower has those you know there's the roof and then some nesting sites on the upper level don't have this separation and what's actually interesting about the upper level nesting sites is there's this one row that year after year has this like three pairs of birds right next to each other that are remarkably aggressive. And what's curious about those sites is they don't have dividers between Hmm. the ledges. And they're also very close to cormorant nests, that pelagic cormorants also nest on the tower. 
So it's curious that those birds in particular are very aggressive. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it, but yeah. there's there's fights. And, and another thing about that is let's say that uh, invade, an invading kittiwake comes to check out a nest site that doesn't have an adult present to it. Sometimes the neighbors of that nest site will check them out and kind of try to shoo them away or display some signs of aggression towards them saying, hey, like, we don't know you. You don't you don't live here. Uh, I, I've never seen them go as far as to, you know, lock beaks and take them down as sometimes kittiwakes do, but they certainly recognize who their neighbors are. Huh. Yeah, it makes me wonder, you know, because to me, they all look the same. <laughs> That's one of the nice things about having bird bands, yeah. you know, color bands, is you can identify them uh, more readily. But obviously, they know each other. It's like, I wonder, I mean, I guess we recognize different voices and maybe to somebody who wasn't attuned to human voices or different faces even, like that's really obvious to us, but we're very, we're adapted for that, you know, and, and that is, you know, there's this, been a strong selection pressure for us to recognize each other and who's friend and enemy and those kinds of things. Yeah. And so presumably there's similar factors going on there, but it is it is kind of remarkable to me that they so readily you know, know who's who, apparently. And yeah, they seem to have some sense of that. Yeah. Huh. And so, um, yeah, it sounds like this interesting research has been going on for a long time. You've had a chance to take part out there. One of the things that stands out, and for those that don't know, Middleton Island is in the northern Gulf of Alaska, basically. It's south of, um, well, it's kind of, I guess, more east, southeast of Kenai Peninsula. Yeah. It's yeah. like people always refer to it as, I think it's 80 miles south of Cordova. Okay. Yeah, so it's yeah. kind of not not like if you were to think about the geographic center of the Gulf of Alaska, it's more north than that. It's not that yeah. far offshore, but it's yeah. out there. Uh, there's a, a weather radar out there. Um, yeah. So a Doppler radar out there uh, that tracks things. But it's it, so there's a runway. So and the researchers are out there. But it's one of those things where when birds get out over the water that aren't used to being out over the water, songbirds and stuff. They're, um, you know, any port in a storm. So uh, Middleton Island might be it. And a few years ago, I think it was Luke DeChico. Was was he the one that was doing that? There was, I think, three years in a row they did banding out there in, yeah. the, in the fall season, I think. And they had remarkable vagrants from both North America and Asia, which was kind of kind of fun. And to me, you know, what that brought up was like, those birds are probably coming through southeast Alaska as well. But, you know, good luck finding them. But when they get, they get concentrated at Middleton Island because it's the only place to land, um, then you right. can have some interesting records. So I suppose as a birder who's interested in getting a list, then Middleton has some appeal for that reason, even beyond like getting to work with the birds. Totally. Um, one thing I've always found curious about the songbird landfall on Middleton Island is where the golden crown sparrows are coming from in particular. Mm. And the reason I'm curious about that species on Middleton Island is uh, – kind of right after these high pressure systems come through if the winds are going in the right direction i've been told you want like a winds out of the northwest and or just out of the ideally out of the northwest i believe it is according to uh luke desicchio and nick hajukovic you know their last name hard last names yeah i'm not actually <laughs> sure how you pronounce them exactly so. but yeah that western birds right up that they did and they would mention sometimes they would just have these huge landfalls of golden crown sparrows like in the hundreds and you know at first i was like wow that seems like a lot but then i witnessed the same thing myself i mean 
during the summer on Middleton, when you see little songbirds flush out of the side of the road, you think it's, uh, especially a number like that, it's usually going to be savannah sparrows or Lapham longspurs. Once you get into the fall, all those young birds kind of group up at the base of the tower. You can see like 30 savannah sparrows all Are they all around. nesting there? Yeah. yeah so. Which Lapham longspur is a great bird to have nesting on that island, I must say. But the golden crown sparrows, I mean, they don't stick around long. It's just a couple of days. You're riding the ATV down the the one road that there is, and they're flushing in the tens. So are those birds coming from the Aleutians? Are those birds coming from the interior in south-central Alaska and pushing south and then moving their way, you know, east into the Pacific Flyway, going down, like you said, down southeast and then down to the west coast? I, I guess I'm really curious to see how many of those birds are coming from the Aleutians mm. and making landfall in Middleton. Is there a big breeding population of golden crowns? I'm not quite sure what their breeding there range are, is, like Alaska Peninsula and then out into the Aleutians as well. Yeah, there's definitely golden crown sparrows breeding on some of those islands. Like okay. I believe Bull Deer has golden crown oh, sparrows. Wow. That's pretty far out there. Breeding on that island. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have them nesting here. They aren't breeding here. We get them in migration, and there's a few generally that overwinter around town. But there's been a couple of times, well, one year in particular, uh, 2001. Uh, we we had, I think it was 2001, there was the most I've ever seen. Um, walking along Old Airport Road here, uh, there was tons of them. That same day, there was a bunch of stuff that showed up. A great catbird was, was in town the night before, I think. And then there were a bunch of warblers around that day. Uh, just whatever it was about the weather, it was like what passes for a fallout around here. You know, you hear about some of those East Coast yeah. or Midwest fallouts where they're just hundreds of thousands of birds, you know, moving through. Right. And it's hard to know what piece of that sort of a thing that we got here and how much was actually moving through, you know, because we have such limited access to getting out into the broader area. But um, there were quite a few Golden Crown Sparrows around town that day, but especially at the airport. And I remember being at the airport and a plane coming in and just it flushed a bunch of sparrows. And I, I took a couple, just took pictures of, of the birds flying across. And I think in the picture, I counted well over, I think it might've been over a hundred in the picture. And that was, that was just a snapshot of this, this wave of birds that flushed um, yeah. just in one little area there. And they were much fewer the next day. They were, there was elevated levels for several days after at least, but like mm-hmm. the big numbers were just for that one day. Uh, yeah. But it was remarkable. And yeah, it makes me curious, like where are those coming from? Why are they all here at the same time? <laughs> you know, what what was it that happened? Apparently in those fallouts, often what they'll happen is they'll get stuck behind some sort of weather front. Right. And then when that releases or something, then, then they're just all there at once. And so you get that sort of a thing. Uh, yeah. But, Moments yeah. like that in birding really add the magic to it. I mean, like you said, like we're not – I've never experienced a huge fallout event like they get in you yeah. know, any of the other states down south. But I have had little moments where it's like, oh, wow, now, now we're talking. Now we're on fire. Like, yeah. I have a really fond memory of on Middleton Island, we, we stay in tents, but all of the cooking and cleaning and office work and things like that are done in this building we call the Chateau. It's just an old – refurbished military building it's cozy enough you know wood stove and uh, minimal electricity but we have some internet there and it's nice um kind of home base and so i was standing outside the front door and just noticing a bunch of little birds flitting around just across the street on the there's a thicket that runs 
along the entirety of the side of the road on Middleton on both sides pretty much. And usually, again, it's savannah and fox sparrows, but no, this was yellow. These were yellow birds. It's Wilson's warblers and yellow warblers. And Oh, nice. Yellow warblers breed on the island, but I saw the black caps of the Wilsons, and so I said, oh, this is it. Let's go. And so I stepped outside, and oh, there's an orange crowned. There's another orange crowned, which that's another topic of fall uh, pasture and migration on Middleton Island is the presence and diversity of orange crowned warblers. But, I mean, there was tens of warblers, multiple different species, and then the highlight was a Townsend solitaire oh, actually flew over the chateau. And <laughs> I like to say it flew over, perched on my tent, and then disappeared because that seems like what it did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, we did have one big warbler day. That was the day. I saw seven warbler species that day, including my first black-throated gray and my cool. first magnolia. Uh, I think Nashville warbler was here that day. Wow. Um, I think that... that Probably, I don't remember if I saw it that day, but within that same range, there was also, I believe, a Tennessee warbler. Um, wow. It was, that was 2018. And it was, I think it was, it was October 31st. <laughs> and I got a text from somebody, seems like a lot of warblers around today. And so I probably wouldn't have gone out and looked. I wasn't quite as compulsive about it and didn't have my streaks going and stuff at the time. Uh, and so it would have just been a day like any other. I wouldn't have even known. But since I got that message, I, I went out and looked around. And, yeah, there were a lot of warblers all around town, you know, also more typical yellow rump and those kinds of things. But when I got to Castle Hills, when I saw the magnolia, and, and then the it was a northern pygmy owl showed up and caught it and killed it. Yeah. I, I actually have pictures of it killing it, uh, which was kind of uh, uh, an interesting experience. But, yeah, that was, that was, a, that was quite a day, unexpected. That was an unexpected year. I already had well over 200 species for Sitka. I got 10 new species that year, most of them in the fall. Cool. Um, it was not, I was like, oh, I might get another species or two each year after, you know, locally without traveling. But yeah, that was highly unexpected. That, that fall also was a lark sparrow and a, and a, um, a brown booby showed up, came in on a, cool. a fishing boat. It had been out on the sound. It landed on the poles and came in on the boat and spent the night on the poles in the harbor. So we all got to go see it. And then it went out the next morning and took off again. So that was kind of a fun one. Yeah, that's that's an incredible bird, brown booby. I went to yeah. Hawaii last spring with my mom and got to see my first oh, nice. sulids and red, yeah. red-footed boobies and brown boobies. That's a bird on the earlier brief topic of bird size and what you expect mm-hmm. it to be. I wasn't expecting them to be small by any means, but they're certainly, for some reason, weirdly larger than I expected. Oh, interesting. See, for me, it was the opposite. I think probably because I, like, I think of gannets as being pretty big birds, and that's the... That's yeah. the sort of relative that I'm most familiar with. Mm-hmm. So when the first one that came in here actually was at the Raptor Center, it came in on a fishing boat and was weak and emaciated. Yeah. So they took it in at the Raptor Center, and and it was like, I mean, it's it, much bigger than a sparrow. But like in terms of seabirds and stuff, I was thinking it would probably be, a, you know, half again as large as it actually was. Yeah. Um, but, you know, once I saw it and it kind of reframed my, my reference point. But, yeah, it was pretty cool. And they seemed to be... I mean, this year there was a Nazca booby that showed up a yeah. couple different times. and Really cool. I saw a comment from somebody that knows about such birds, Al- uh, Alvaro, um, somebody that lives in California, but I think has a lot of experience along like the entire West Coast going down into South America. And he said, Nazca boobies actually are cold water, colder water boobies. I think they live on the Galapagos where there's a cold, lot of cold water. Oh, interesting. Uprising. And, um, and so he said, if they make it through the warm stuff, they're more likely to be happy in the north than some of the other ones that, yeah. that 
in pr- in principle are closer. You might think they'd be more likely to be vagrant, but um, you know, with this uh, El Nino and and the way that that's shifting patterns, so a lot of birds aren't getting the food that they want in the south, in the southern hemisphere, off South America, end up moving because uh, the way El Nino affects the currents and and the food situation for them, and so there's potential for some wild and crazy sightings along the West Coast. Maybe even yeah. as well. I mean, Nazca Booby is pretty crazy for Alaska. So, yeah, there's. We were talking about that earlier. Just the and you were mentioning with Connor and you know, there's there's like such a sense of wanderlust of what pelagic birds can you find in Alaskan waters? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think many. I think several. I know several people firsthand that have said, let's just you know, send some floats out just offshore of Middleton, some of those buoys, something to, for something to perch on and just, and just leave them there for a summer. You know, we're bound to get something good. Have like a brown booby perch on one of those. Have have like a a remote cam on it or something or just, or just just in scope, in scope distance, you know? Yeah. 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 You never know. I mean, it's, it's kind of a a wild thing out there Uh, and out there. I mean, just like anywhere, birds, especially because they fly and you just, Never know what might show up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like Brad Bentard, on he has the only documented, and he has a photo of it, a Salvin's albatross, which mm. is a species you could see down in New Zealand. And I think the story is he was on a U.S. Fish and Wildlife vessel. I think he was on the Tiglax, the Tecla. And he was out in the Aleutian chain somewhere. And he said, that looks like a weird, large albatross. Let's, let's take a look. And then sure enough, it was sitting on the water he took some photos, it took off, and they were able to stay pretty close to it for, you know, a few minutes and got phenomenal looks. And it's just stuff like that where it's like you never could have guessed. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, that was uh, Connor, my son, not this summer, but, you know, not 2023, but 2022. He he got a wedge-tailed shearwater, which, you know, I was like, okay. But then it come to find out there's like – to see them regularly, you either got to go to Hawaii or Baja, California. Like yeah. there's there's records in California, but there's sounded like only like a handful of records from even even Oregon and Washington and BC. And then to have one, he said there'd been South Wind for for several days before that. That might have been part of it. Yeah, but, you know. Who and knows? I saw I saw some people they were pulling up some some maps and talking about uh, surface temperature and things mm-hmm. like that and how there was some blob that was kind of moving further north during yeah, that time. Water. And they yeah. were kind of theorizing if that had any role to play. But I remember seeing that on Facebook and being on Middleton and going, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. You never know. It's not that far away. So yeah. So it's yeah being out there, it's not that many people. I mean, there's people out there fishing and, and doing yeah. things out there, but most of them aren't like... They've got other priorities than than checking every last bird that's going by. So yeah. it's hard to ha- it's hard to have people have time in out there. Every time I meet somebody, usually on planes coming to Southeast Alaska, that is going out fishing regular regularly, I tell them about those weird bird occurrences and seabird occurrences, and tell them if you ever see some weird bird perch, yeah. take, take a, a photo. Yeah, yeah, you never know. But yeah, I should ask you about because. Why you came to Sitka this time wasn't actually for birds. Uh, so Middleton yeah. Island sort of precipitated this 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 new interest. And yeah, you messaged me a few days ago and like I'm coming to Sitka for nudibranchs. And I was like, it's not the right uh, tides necessarily, but you know when you have the opportunity and you're like, oh, I'll just do the deck, dock fouling. And yeah, that's a good place to look, no matter what the tides are. But right. yeah, I thought, well, are you doing it for a research or just for fun? You're like, just for fun. So so how'd you get into nudibranchs? So nudibranchs. Um I guess sea slugs for people that don't know. Um, 
basically I was tide pooling on Middleton Island. You know, I always knew about tide pooling just from growing up in Alaska. You hear about it. People go down to Homer and yeah, I guess Anchorage itself isn't really the yeah a great exactly. place for that. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so always kind of had the interest, and I did the internship at the Sea Life Center, and that's always been a favorite place of mine to go see in the state, and. You know, just learn about different marine creatures and marine life, sea stars and sea anemones. And I heard about Kyle Elliott tide pooling on Middleton Island, and he had seen a giant Pacific octopus one time. I said, oh, I'd love to see one of those, and never did see one. But just tide pooling on Middleton is how I got introduced to nudibranchs, because just through spending enough time out there, I eventually saw one species of nudibranch, which was a very small little red one that I had totally been overlooking is just little conspicuous but little just nondescript little red blobs floating around and then someone perched on a rock and was like, oh, that's it. And somebody else on the island had mentioned, yeah, there's tons of them out there. And then we went out a few days later, not looking specifically specifically for them, but just tide pooling in general. And then I saw a Monterey Dorid, which – to give a size comparison, the red sponge door that I saw was, you know, maybe if I had, it was less than an inch long. Yeah, like maybe a half inch. They're, yeah. they're small. Yeah. And then the Monterey door was easily six inches in yeah. length. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, wow. And then I couldn't tell exactly what species it was, so did some research. And it goes, oh, well, this is, you know, one of the false sea lemons or sea lemons. Uh, could be any number of these ones and this was before i really knew much about iNaturalist or was using iNaturalist and found out about the term nudibranch and then well kind of went from history from there you know i went to homer a couple of times with friends uh they were visiting from out of state and did some tide pooling there and saw some went across the bay went across kachemak bay to peterson bay um did some tide pooling there um whittier Seward dock fouling. I found out about dock fouling on a Facebook group, Pacific Tide Pooling and Beachcombing. And that introduced me to you don't need low tides, like you mentioned, to find nudibranchs. You can just look on the sides of docks and pull up ropes and strands of kelp and find these things. If there's food for them, they'll be there. Yeah. And sure enough, I said, well, where else can I go that might have some more? Because Homer's, Homer's great. You can definitely find some in Homer. That's an untapped gem. Whittier, uh, you know, you're not as likely. I think the salinity in Whittier is just not as good as it is in Kachemek Bay. Seward, I actually got really lucky and saw three different species in Seward um, and then figured, well, I have some extra miles. I should give Sitka a shot and, you know, see what I can find there. I, I really was hungry for more diversity as well mm. and just other creatures too, like uh, Paul today was showing me all the different um, tunicates yeah, and that's things a, like that. <laughs> like that's a – I mean I had no clue about those. That's probably going to turn into a whole new obsession. That's a deep rabbit hole. Tunicates are challenging, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of different forms of those. Paul's done more work. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are people that study tunicates. So uh, among us sort of local folks and, and even regional sort of like amateur naturalists, as best I can tell – Paul has done uh, in regional Southeast Alaska. You, you know, he's he's taken the time to collect and dissect some of them and try and dig into the literature. And, and 
Um, he's he's pretty good about that, uh, or you know, doing that when he's interested. So I think he has more tunicates than anybody else in Alaska <laughs> on iNaturalist, you know, yeah, in terms of number of species, and and I'm sure there's still plenty more that he hasn't you know made made note of because some of them are pretty amorphous blobs. We'll call them the the tunicates are sure certainly more. They're not as flashy or showy yeah, as yeah. the uh, nudibranchs. I mean, yeah, the nudi- yeah, the nudibranchs are definitely much more charismatic in terms of appearance, and um, some more than others. There are some pretty uh, drab and, and plain, uh, easy to overlook kind of uh, yeah. nudibranchs, but but the uh, and there are some fancy um, like the Pacific sea peach, the Halicinthia. Um, no, I don't remember this uh, species name of it, but. Um, that one's a big, showy, like sea squirt. You know, yeah. they, they kind of, if you think of a tunicate sea squirt, like this is this is what they look like the big red, you know, column with, with two, two yeah. tubes so at the top. Are, are all sea squirts tunicates? So, tunicate is the broader term. They're actually part of the phylum chordata, chordata as in their larval form. You can see it like a, a proto a backbone kind of thing, but then no. they turn into this, what we would otherwise think of as an invertebrate. <laughs> okay. Even though, strictly speaking, they're not. As a, I mean, yeah, if, if we call cord, uh, the phylum chordata what vertebrates are, they're in that. Um, but their mature form doesn't make you think of animals with backbones, and they don't have a backbone, strictly speaking, at that stage. Um, but they're all tunicates. And then there's different kinds of... There's I think there, there's colonial ones. There's ones that live individually. There's... Um, like salps, I think, are salps a kind of tunicate? I don't, I don't remember. Off, so I think there's some free swimming ones, and but mostly we're looking at the the ones that are attached as as uh, you know mature. I'm not a, I, I don't remember all the the details of tunicate yeah. biology, and there's a lot of diversity there in terms of just how they look and their their sort of lifestyles. Yeah. I think that was kind of a talking about diversity and rabbit holes of marine life that was something that i've realized very quickly with trying to learn more about nudibranchs is if you want to see nudibranchs you want to learn about their diet and i mean talk about rabbit holes just yeah then you yeah (laughs) looking at hydroids and bryozones and tunicates and you know everything in between i mean it's it's kind of really neat if for anyone that's wanting to try something new or get a new hobby or just learn. I mean, I guess growing up in Alaska, having an interest in marine life, you know, very surface level interest, you know, you go to the beach, you see some sea stars and some anemones, you know, it's it's a great time. But if you even start delving a little bit deeper, I mean, it's there's just so much to learn and it's really in, intriguing and kind of rewarding learning, I found. Mm. Um yeah, I don't know quite how to put the exact words on it, but it's just, it's it's kind of similar to birding in a sense where there's always like the desire to see new things. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you've seen enough new things, well, the things that you saw first are now still rewarding, if that makes sense. You know, if you see a hundred birds in sequence, by the time you get to number a hundred, if you go back to number one, it's still rewarding to see that. Yeah. Um, yeah, the intertidal is, I mean, it, it seems like it's hands down the most, especially rocky intertidal um, shorelines are, well, it depends on the location. I, there are some that are not especially exciting, but um, there's some of the most diverse, like, 
number of different kinds of organisms per unit of area is remarkably high in some of these places. And yeah. I found, you know, I I played around at the beach when I was a kid or whatever, but it's only been in the last 20 years that I've started to be a little more uh, interested in understanding. And part of the challenge has been for me that it's it's hard to, this is so much, it's hard to know where to start. So I haven't right. dedicated as much effort to it as I might have some other things. But even so, I mean, I've got hundreds of species that are marine species at this point in iNaturalist. Mm-hmm. And and I I don't know. I mean, I haven't. It's it's hard because they come in so many different groups. It's hard to it's hard to separate them out as okay. These are the marine species that I have. So I don't really know how many you know intertidal species I have. And for me, they're mostly intertidal. But um, I can say that as many as I have, and as many times as I've been down to the Totem Park Beach or Sandy Beach or whatever beach, pretty much every time I go down to the beach and spend much time there, I find something I haven't documented before. Yeah, and so it's it's I see a lot of the stuff. I mean, a lot of the stuff is the same. And I've been curious. I haven't really done it, but I, it could be an interesting project to just revisit the same stretch of beach, get to know the individual rocks there, and how much are they changing over the course of the year? Am I seeing that same chitin in the same place again mm-hmm. and again and again, or is it moving around? Or you know, to to and it'd have to be a pretty small area to even wrap my head around yeah. it all, I think. But I'm kind of curious about that. That would be interesting because some of those really highly endemic nudibranchs in the more tropical waters that have the colors that they do because they only feed on this one specific species of algae, which is highly endemic in its own right. I mean, they don't move around much at all. They no, presumably just so. stay in that little patch all year, which is really interesting. What I think. The nudibranchs, on average, have a life cycle of maximum like a year. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. I I was just we were talking to Matt Wilson at the uh, Science Center Aquarium today, and he said, yeah, most of them. He said some of them might live multiple years, but probably those larger ones do. Sure, but but many of them, it is kind of a year a year cycle. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't. I haven't looked in. It's a little harder to observe them than than some of the other right. things, which is so. So it, it, for me, it's even more brief snapshots than of birds or something that you have a little, or plants that you get to see a bit more of their life cycle with. So, um, but and that's one of the things that's fun to talk to Matt about at the aquarium is that he gets to observe things because he's working with them and he's and and keeping them alive and and observing them through their lifespan, at least in the shorter lived things. Some of them, as he was saying to us today, will outlive him. No. Um, if if he's doing his job right, that the you get to see a little bit more of, or a lot more really of of this cycle of of how these organisms are are making their way in the world. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's uh, no end of stuff out there for sure. <laughs> so um, yeah, we're kind of coming to the end of our time here, and uh, yeah, so you've spent a day in Sitka so far. You have one more day here, hoping to find a few more nudibranchs, and then. Yeah, you know, so it seems like you started as a birder and and now are you know moving into some marine biology with a little bit of that um, sort of birder listing kind of getting pictures enthusiasm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was really thrilled today. Um, started off really well. Expectations have been met. We found three different species of or four different species of nudibranchs today. Just you know, within like two hours of being off the plane. Nice. So hoping for more. All right. Well, I th- appreciate you coming in and, and visiting with me on your on your brief trip here. And yeah, good luck with the, the continued explorations. Yeah, thanks for your time. It's been good being here. 
You've been listening to a conversation I recorded earlier this month with David Jadhan. I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me during his brief visit here in Sitka. And thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.